is Love Your Work. On this show, we help you make it as a creative. I'm David Cadavy. If you want to join us here on Love Your Work every Thursday, please hit subscribe on your podcast app and sign up for the Love Mondays newsletter. I've studied history's greatest creatives, and each Monday I share with you the very best lessons I've learned. It's taken me thousands of hours to learn these secrets. You can learn them in two minutes a week for free. Sign up at cadavy.net slash Mondays. When something bad happens, it's tempting to think that you made a bad decision. But the quality of your decision-making doesn't always align with the quality of your outcomes. Sometimes you make a good decision and you have a bad outcome. Even more dangerous, sometimes you make a bad decision and have a good outcome. Now, what could be so bad about that? Annie Duke is going to tell you she is a former professional poker player and decision strategist. She's dedicated to improving decision-making skills around the world amongst adults and children. She's author of Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. In this conversation, you'll learn, we often think of life as like a game of chess. You've heard that before. But why is it actually more like a game of poker? And how do we separate luck from skill? Learn the most common mental error that people make that holds them back from ever learning to make better decisions because they can't separate luck from skill. And why do strong opinions make you dumber? Learn how to overcome what's called motivated reasoning to make more accurate predictions and better decisions. Thanks so much to our Patreon supporters. I appreciate your support. I know the thousands of listeners all over the world who enjoy the show for free also really appreciate your support. Why do you do it? Why do Patreon supporters put their money where their minds are every single month? I asked Patreon supporter Drew. He said, I support you and the show because I believe in the mission of the podcast. More than that, I believe in your unique approach to the mission. Deeper than those things, there is something about your journey and your quest that resonates with me in a place beyond words. Wow. (laughs) That is really wonderful, Drew. If you are like Drew, if you believe and love your work, if you believe in the power of creativity to bring out the best in people, if you believe there can be less hustle and more flow and less crushing and more cultivating, support Love Your Work on Patreon. Not everyone can afford to pony up a coffee a month, but those of you who can can keep the show going for those of you who can't. Visit patreon.com slash or you can just tap the dollar sign on the Overcast player. It's pretty cool. That is patreon.com slash Here is Annie Duke. I'm here with Annie Duke. And Annie, you're a poker champion. You won a World Series of Poker Bracelet in 2004. You've won more than $4 million in live tournament winnings. You're known as the Duchess of Poker. I was surprised when I picked up your book, Thinking in Bets, to to see that being a poker player prepares somebody to be an expert on decision making. So why is that? Oh, okay. Well, let me say a couple of things. One is uh, I have never referred to myself as the Duchess of Poker. I know that some people call me that, <laughs> okay. but like, <laughs> um, uh, number two, I just want to make it clear that I, that I, I haven't played poker since 2012. I retired in 2012. So I just don't want people to get the idea that um, somehow I'm saying I'm still actively um, sure. playing poker because I happen to have retired. Uh, but anyways, having those two housekeeping things away, 
Um, uh, so uh, first of all, I, I think that poker playing on its own definitely does prepare you to be, um, a great decision maker for the, for the reason that it, it's, it's actually, uh, an incredibly hard decision problem that you're faced with when you're playing poker. Um, you have this really interesting interaction of hidden information. You know, the cards are face down. You don't necessarily know what your opponents are thinking. Uh, there's lots and lots of stuff that's hidden from view. Um, uh, and you're having to make a decision where you can't, you're, you're, you can't see that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the other thing is obviously there's this very prominent influence of luck. So you have to get really comfortable with the idea that, you know, the, the quality of any decision that I make on, on one particular iteration, like, you know, I, I play a hand and I win or lose it, that there, that the quality of the outcome is not going to be perfectly correlated with the quality of the decision because there, there happens to be this intervention of luck. So I, I can play the very best hand like aces. Um, I can play it really well and I can still lose because say you hit a, a lucky turn of the card. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and obviously that, that's a problem. I think the bigger problem is actually that I can play a, a poor hand. I can play it poorly and I can still win. And then my poor play is kind of like hidden from my view in that way because I happen to have a good outcome. So, uh, you have to be able to navigate that uncertainty. You have to be able to make decisions very quickly. You have to get really, really comfortable with making decisions under those circumstances where you're not a hundred percent sure. Um, and you get really comfortable with the probabilistic nature of the world. And I think that that maps really, really beautifully onto most of the decisions that we're making in life. I mean, we can take something like that seems super simple and super straightforward, like uh, proceeding through a traffic intersection. And, you know, we all know, like you can go through a green light and get in an accident and you can go through a red light and not get in an accident. And that's like one of the simplest decisions that you make every single day. Obviously, when you start getting into more complex decisions, I think that poker is, is going to be, uh, you know, uh, a much even a, a better model for a lot more complex decisions where you have a, a much stronger influence of, of luck and hidden information. So so poker on its own, I think, is great for understanding the decision, decision making. It just so happens that before I was a poker player, I was also doing my PhD work in cognitive science at Penn, mm-hmm. which I think was also really helpful for me <laughs> um, uh, in terms of understanding just generally behavioral science and behavioral psychology um, so that I had kind of a foundation for for how these two things might speak to each other. And I think that, you know, I was fully intending to, to be an academic and I ended up actually having some luck intervene in my life that caused me to not, not go into academics in terms of being a professor and, and to go into poker. And I consider that to be uh, just really one of the luckiest things that happened to me that I had these two kind of paths that collided with each other in a way that, that interacted to, to give me, I think, you know, this look into this understanding of decision-making that maybe I otherwise wouldn't have had mm-hmm. if I didn't have the poker experience as well. Yeah. I was really surprised, I guess, to, I just to try on this idea that poker is this analog to life, uh, not being a poker player. Every time I play poker, everybody gets mad at me because I'm not doing it right and etc. cetera. <laughs> and um, I've often heard people say uh, or compare life or decisions to, to a chess match. But as you say, it's a completely different thing from, from, from poker, right? 
Yeah. So, you know, I think it's interesting because obviously, this is a, you know, oh, they're playing three-dimensional chess. I mean, that seems to be like the ultimate compliment. Oh, right. Somebody. Yeah. Um, right? People say that oh, three-dimensional chess. I think- It's a hot one lately. Yeah. I, was That comes from Star Trek, right? Like, didn't Spock play three-dimensional chess? I have I no idea. Came from. So here's the best, I think, I think the best way that I can explain why poker is a better way to think about decision-making than, than chess, at least as far as most of the decisions that you make in life. So, and, and this is the way that I would, I, I would kind of get to it, which is, let's say that, um, me and a friend of mine played a game of chess and you did not watch us play. So you don't know what moves we made. The only thing you know is that I lost. That's the only thing you know. Can you say something about my decision-making compared to my friends? Was my decision-making better or worse than my friends hmm. in that game of chess? I don't know, maybe, because like you, maybe you you have some knowledge about whether your friend knows certain moves. And again, chess is another well, do, area. Do you that, need to know that? I mean, that's the interesting question about chess. Yeah. If you know I lost and it was chess, do you know that I played worse? In in the same way as if I play tennis against a friend of mine and I lose a set, yeah. do you know who played worse in that set? Hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, you could have some luck in, in uh, tennis, I guess. Uh, maybe you can have some in chess, but chess is one of these things where supposedly it's it's a solved uh, game. You can, right. if you know all the moves, then it's strictly a matter of skill. You're right. There, There is some small, you know, there is a little bit of luck in chess and it's a little bit of hidden information. Like I might not know what, openings my friend knows or what endings my friend knows. But we can say with pretty good confidence that if I play a game of chess against my friend, you don't need to see the moves to know that my decision-making relative to my friends was worse. Mm -hmm. That seems pretty fair. Okay, so now let's take poker. Let's say that for however long it takes to play a chess match, let's say an hour, I play poker with my friend. And you didn't see the game. You didn't see any of the hands I played. You didn't see any of the hands my friend played. You don't know anything about the moves. All you know is that I lost to my friend playing poker. That's the only thing you know. Is there anything that you can say about my decision-making compared to my friends? Uh, maybe. I mean, uh, but I would I, I would certainly be putting luck into the equation a little bit more. Oh, maybe you got bad cards. Right. So that's a difference. It's like when you're playing chess, if I lose, it's not like you can say, well, maybe you got unlucky dice, right? Like, like as if chess were a game where like you roll the dice and like, you know, you get a nine and all of a sudden, uh, I get an extra rook or something, right? Like we, we know that that doesn't happen, that, 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 mm -hmm. uh, the, where the pieces are or where they stay until I move them, um, that you don't have that strong influence of, of luck in that way uh, and that I can see all the pieces. So what that means is that in, in a game like chess, if I know what the outcome of the game is, I kind of know what the relative decision-making quality was of the two people who played. But if, if it's poker, I don't necessarily know that mm -hmm. because I don't know. Is, is it just because like maybe Annie played way better but then on the last hand, you know, she had aces and her friend had fives. 
and they put all their money in the pot and through no fault of Annie's, a five hit. But boy, that was a great decision by Annie. And if she did that over and over again for the rest of her life, she'd make a lot of money. She just happened to lose on that one time. Mm-hmm. So, so what we can see is that in chess, if you know the quality of the result, if you know what the outcome is, that it's pretty okay. It's not a terrible strategy to work backwards and say, that tells me what I need to know about the quality of the decision making. But in poker, if you know the quality of the outcome, if you know what the result is, it is a pretty bad strategy to say, well, let me work backwards then and try to, and that tells me what the quality of the decision is. Um, and when we think about, uh, so then which is the better sort of analog for life's decisions, right? Um, well, it looks like poker must be because it's the same thing. Like if I come to you and I say, I got in a car accident and that's the only thing that you know, do you know if it was because I drove poorly? Yeah, you don't know. You don't know because it could be that I was driving just fine and some drunk driver hit me. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be that, I was driving just fine and unbeknownst to me, there was a car in front of me that had, um, you know, some kind of leak in, a, in the oil line and there was oil all over the road and I couldn't possibly have known that, mm-hmm. right? And I spun out even though I was driving just fine. Or it could be that, uh, you know, I was texting and I got in an accident because I was texting. Like, you just don't know. What, what, was it my decision making or was it just like something random and bad luck? So- and you can think about that like for, for anything. Like if I invest in a stock and I, and I make money on the stock, is it because I made a good decision to invest in the stock or was it because I got unlucky? You don't know unless I tell you something about my process. Right. Yeah, it seems like the perfect analog. Right? You don't know unless I tell you why. Right, exactly. But in chess, you do know. You do know. In, if life were like chess, when I made money in a stock, it, it would all, it would be because I made a good decision. Mm-hmm. If I got in a car accident, it would be because I drove poorly. Right. But that's not the way that life works. Yeah. And there's so many things in, in life where you have this imperfect information and you're trying to make decisions based upon it. And there's, you know, all these different scenarios that can happen. I can think of, you know, uh, strategies for, for getting a visa to stay in a country is something I've navigated mm-hmm. myself, whether or not to, to move, whether or not to make a career change, whether or not to, um, try a risky treatment for uh, a health condition or, right. um, make decisions in a business that anticipate changes to the industry or to the competitive landscape. These are all things where you have imperfect information, at least to our feeble human brains. And, um, yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, if you think about like, let's say that you're somebody who lives in the South mm-hmm. uh, and you're trying to decide whether to move to uh, Boston. Right. Well, of course you have imperfect information. I mean, one of the, one of the pieces of information you don't have is that you've never lived a winter in Boston. <laughs> and one would assume that, that you don't have the luxury to go off and live in a winter in Boston before you decide to move, right? right? Like uh, if you're thinking about taking a job, like there's just a time constraint or there's a, there, there's a constraint of like, well, I'm not going to uproot and like pay all the money to go live in Boston to go try to find the information out Mm -hmm. as to whether I I actually uh, can survive a, a Boston winter. So you're estimating that, right? You're, you're sort of trying to figure out sort of looking forward. Well, I know that, you know, there's, if I move to Boston, I have to think about whether I can stand the winter because I'm like, you know, a Florida person. And 
there's no possible way that you can know for sure how you're going to react to that because mm-hmm. you've never experienced it. And, and that's aside from all the stuff that's just period hidden from view. So there's certain things that we can't know because they're only things that we can know as the future unfolds, right? But there's, there's also stuff that we can't know because the information just period isn't available to us, mm-hmm. you know? Like our opponent's cards. Like our opponent's cards. Exactly. And this comes up in investing all the time. This comes up, if you think about it, like think about it in terms of, uh, you go into a negotiation, right? Um, that person has some sort of bottom line but you can't know it. It lives in their head. You can only estimate what you think their bottom line is based on what you know about that person or what that person's position is or whatever. And obviously the better your information, the more closely you're going to be able to estimate what that is. But it's going to be very hard for you to hit that exactly because it's just not something that's known to you. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a sort of comforting lesson from the book, which is, is that if you make a decision and uh, it doesn't turn out the way you hoped, that doesn't necessarily mean that you made a bad decision. So why yes. is that? And, and what do you call that? Right. So, so first of all, I, you know, I think it's really interesting because one of the things that people really take from the book is that exact thing that you just said. And don't get me wrong. I am incredibly happy that people have taken that from the book. Um, so so let, let me first to sort of explain why that is. So do, because of this influence of luck, right? Um, you can have something turn out really poorly and your decision could have been perfectly fine. You know, in the, in the same way of like, I can run, I can, I can drive through a green light with a well-maintained car and I can still get in an accident. Right. And it doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's my fault. So, uh, there's all sorts of things there. There's, there's all sorts of situations where, 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 uh, that can come up for a person. Um, you can make a perfectly good decision where you move from Florida to, to Boston and the decision is very sound and the process for making the decision was really sound and you get there and it just turns out that you cannot take the Boston winter. That doesn't mean it was a bad decision because the, the thing that got revealed to you was something that you couldn't possibly have known after, you know, before the fact. Um, without having actually experienced that. And, you know, assuming that you went into through the process of like thinking about that, looking at, you know, how, how much weather affects your happiness. Maybe you go up there for a few days during the winter, which is something that you could afford to do. Um, and you think, oh, this isn't so bad. You know, assuming that you've put in the work and you have a good process, the fact that you ended up with a, with a bad outcome doesn't necessarily mean it was a bad choice. You know, if you, if you go to a college and it turns out that you don't like the college, that doesn't mean it was a bad choice mm-hmm. to, to go to that college. It could, right? If you, if you chose the college solely because your, your high school sweetheart was going there, like I would venture to say that that was probably a pretty poor decision, <laughs> regardless of how it turned out. But it may be that you put in all the work and you get there and it just turns out it's not a fit and it wasn't something you could necessarily have, have figured out without having actually experienced it. So, so this is one of the main things that people take from the book. Yeah. And it's a little ironic because it's comforting to think that you can make, uh, you, you can have something not turn out right. And, uh, and oh, it wasn't, it wasn't that you made a bad decision, but, but in some ways that can actually play into, our, our own biases about wanting to uh, think that the world is is uh, 
that, that when things don't go our way, that it's some, for some reason outside of our control. So I love that you just said that because that, that's what I'm getting at with saying, I think it's so interesting that that's the main thing that people have taken from the book. Mm -hmm. Because what I really wish people would take from the book, like really, really wish deep, deep down in my heart is I can have a really good result and it could be because I didn't make a good decision. Mm -hmm. So I think that we need to understand. Who wants to believe that? (laughs) Right, exactly. So so we want to think about the fact that it's symmetrical in that way, right? And in fact, we can think about that there's there's really, we can think about it as a two by two, right? With four quadrants, right? You you have a good decision process. You have a good outcome. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's great. Um, You have a good decision process, but a bad outcome. So that's what we just discussed. You have a bad decision process and a bad outcome. Okay, that's sad. Um, everybody feels sad in that spot. But here's the one. You have a bad decision process and a good outcome. And what I feel mm-hmm. like is that particular quadrant remains really unexamined. And and I've certainly seen it. And I, I, I consider that this is my responsibility that I didn't communicate this as forcefully in the book as I should have. That it's a that's a really big problem. That if you're going to accept this idea that sometimes you can have a, a good process and a bad outcome, then you must accept along with that, that sometimes you can have a bad process and a good outcome. But here's where we have the problem. And here's why this asymmetry exists in terms of the way that like people respond to that. Um, if you have a bad outcome, you feel bad, mm-hmm. right? I mean, naturally you had a bad outcome. You had a loss. You like, you feel bad. So who isn't eager to go dig into that? And try to figure out if that was due to luck. Because you already feel bad. So if you find out that it was due to your bad decision making, like it's not like you're worse off than you were before you went in and examined it, right? Because you already feel bad because you lost. Well, except for now you feel bad for having made a poor decision too. And I feel people want to protect themselves from that, don't they? Well, except you're already sort of exposed to that. Yeah. Like, so if you happen to dig into it and you find out, oh no, it was actually due to luck. Now that's a win. Mm-hmm. So your default position is like, okay, I have a bad outcome. I feel sort of bad. Like, ooh, what if that's my fault? Right. And if you dig in and you find out it was your fault, well, you were already kind of bad off anyway. But if you dig in and you find out, oh no, it was actually due to bad luck, mm-hmm. then it's like, whoa, that's way better. So of course you're, you're looking to dig in because you can sort of get out of, it becomes like your escape hatch yeah. from this bad feeling that you have about yourself. But so now let's consider it from the reverse. You have a good outcome. You're feeling pretty good about yourself. If you dig into the process, you're opening yourself up to maybe not taking credit for that. And who wants to do that? It's like on the downside, you're opening yourself up for not having to take credit for the bad results. So of course, everybody's eager to do that. But on the good side, you're opening yourself up to not taking credit for the good result. And nobody wants to do that. So what ends up happening is that when people start to do these like process dives, when they start to really understand, okay, well, I understand that, that there's this, you know, that, that decision quality and outcome quality aren't perfectly correlated. They get super, the the place that they really like to dive is on the downside, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Like they really like to dive into process and start thinking about process and the disconnection between outcomes and decision quality on the downside. But that, that, that's thing where you, you know, it's on the upside where like something good has happened. People don't like to open that box up very much. And 
you know, I'm, this is something like I ha- I have another, I have a new book coming out in the spring and this is something that I'm actually, I'm, I'm trying to remedy. I think the, the mistake that I made in thinking in bats where I didn't, I think, emphasize this particular point mm. as much as I, as I really should have. And I'm not, and then in the next book, this point gets really hammered. Oh. Like you have, you have to be looking at the wins and be willing to say this might be, be due to luck as well. You have to understand that all four quadrants of that two by two are naturally going to be populated in your life. You're going to have some great outcomes that were due to your great decisions for sure. You're going to have some bad outcomes that were due to bad luck for sure. But you're also going to have bad outcomes that were due to poor decision making. And you're going to have some good outcomes that came from poor decision making as well. And you have to be looking across all of that universe in order to really grab as many learning opportunities as possible. Right. Because if we're living in a world where we aren't able to distinguish between outcomes that were influenced by luck rather than decision making, then it becomes very difficult for us to evaluate and improve our decision making processes, right? Right. Because, because what happens is that we start taking some really bad lessons from, from outcomes. I mean, we already have this problem, which is that outcomes aren't particularly informative, like not a single outcome. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, I mean, the, the way that I like to think about it is, is look, here, here's the problem. If you have a single outcome and you're actually trying to derive something about the quality of the decision that led to that particular outcome is that an outcome that's going to happen 2% of the time is going to happen 2% of the time. And it's very hard for us to know based on a single outcome, whether that was part of the 2% or not. Right. Right. I mean, that, that's the issue, right? So look, if, if I think that an outcome is going to happen 2% of the time and I get a thousand runs at it or even a hundred runs at it, right? And I see if in that hundred runs, it actually occurs 80% of the time, I've learned something right? Oh, well, actually it probably isn't only 2% to occur. Mm-hmm. But if I only get one try at it, it's very hard for me to know, is this, is this just, I just happen to see the 2%. So one outcome is, is not particularly informative to figuring out whether the quality of the decision was particularly good or bad. Like whether, whether a particular outcome was good or bad doesn't really help us very much. And in fact, it's worse than not particularly informative, it actually um, can actually inhibit our ability to learn. It can actually teach us some very bad lessons in exactly this way, right? If I have a really good outcome, I'm going to have a tendency to say, oh, I made a great decision mm-hmm. when maybe I didn't, right? Like maybe I ran a red light and I got through safely and now I'm running around, you know, running red lights all the time because because I took a really bad lesson from that one time that, that things went well. And, and by the way, like, I don't know, when I was younger, I used to hear people say all the time things, you know, the most idiotic thing somebody could say, which is I drive better when I'm drunk. Yeah. How does somebody get to that conclusion? Well, because the outcome, a particular outcome got in the way Mm -hmm. of their ability to actually see through to what the decision quality was. I mean, this is where, where outcomes can actually be worse than not informative. Right. Yeah. I mean, I see this with people. Um, yeah, I live in Colombia, which is a relatively unsafe place and you have to watch out. And, but I know people who they spend a few months there and they're like, Oh, well, I walked around all over the place. Nothing happened to me. Mm-hmm. 
which it just ignores sort of the base rate uh, statistics that are, yeah. that, that, are, that are right there. And I can see how this can be exacerbated by this uh, self-serving bias, this idea that we want to attribute our successes to our skill and our failures to our, uh, we want to attribute failures to bad luck, right? So it gets even worse when that happens. Yeah. And I, I, I think that, I, I think that we can really understand self-serving bias through, through this lens of, of motivated reasoning, mm. right? Which is, so, so motivated reasoning basically is the idea that we, we think that information is in the driver's seat as far as belief formation. So, uh, we get some information. Uh, we, you know, we think about it. We try to decide like, hmm, what does this information mean? And is it true or not? Or what's the accuracy of it? And, you know, do sort all sorts of, you know, vetting of it. And then ha- having done that, having sort of objectively thought about the information, we then form a belief or we update beliefs that we already have. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that that is in no way, shape or form uh, the process that actually occurs. Uh, it actually is something more like this. We believe things. And the beliefs that we have um, have a very, very strong influence on the way that we process information. And that particular influence is that we process information in a way that is motivated to reinforce the beliefs that we already have. In other words, to prove the things that we already believe to be correct. So, you know, I'm sure most of the people uh, listening to this podcast have heard of confirmation bias. Um, which is that we notice information that confirms the beliefs we already have, and we tend not mm-hmm. to notice information uh, that doesn't confirm beliefs we already have. Um, in fact, we really are attracted to and seek out information that agrees with us. So that's why uh, Trump supporters are watching Fox and people who really don't like Trump are watching MSNBC. Right. Uh, because, you know, the people who really hate Trump get to hear their views parroted back at them. And the people who really love Trump get to hear their views parroted back at them. And that makes us all feel good because it supports the beliefs that we already have, right? So, uh, and then the the companion to confirmation bias is disconfirmation bias, which is that when we're confronted with information that disagrees with us, we will work very, very, very hard to uh, prove that it's wrong. So if a Trump supporter were to watch NBC, they would watch it arguing about why everything that the people on NBC said was wrong, mm-hmm. as opposed to actually hearing what was being said with an open mind and, and vice versa. Um, I think that John Haidt puts this really well, that the standard for information that agrees with us is, um, could it be true? And the standard for information that disagrees with us is, must it be true? Uh, those are two really different standards. Um, and I know that like I do this for myself as well. Like if I'm if I'm reading the news in the morning and, you know, the news agrees with me, I'm like, cool. And if it disagrees with me, I'm like, here's why it's biased. And this is the data they're ignoring. And this is why their analysis is wrong. And, you know, whatever, they're dumb. So if it conforms with our opinion, it's like, well, that's plausible. So it must be true. And if it is against our opinion, then we're like, well, there's this one little thing that's off. And so therefore, mm-hmm. there's no way that this is true. Right. So it, it, it can't, it's right. So it's not, must it be true? Right. So that's the, must it be true? Yeah. Um, versus could it be true? So, so now if we take motivated reasoning, we can now sort of see where self-serving bias comes from. So for people who don't know what self-serving bias is, it's when you have a bad outcome, 
it's due to luck. And when you have a good outcome, it's due to skill, mm-hmm. right? So uh, when I close a sale, it's because I'm a great salesperson. And when I lose a sale, it's because uh, that company had already made all its decisions for that quarter. Yeah. All right. So that would be an example of it. We can see this in the context now of motivated reasoning. So what's one of the primary beliefs that we have that we're trying to protect, that we're trying to prove it is correct, is that we are good actors, that we um, are smart and competent, that we're good decision makers, that we're the masters of our own fate in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. And we're trying to really protect our the, the image of ourself, our self-image. So all of this is kind of motivated by like, our identity is is woven out of the beliefs that we have. And we want to feel positively about our identity. And that's really what we're trying to protect. So when we have a good outcome, we have an opportunity to strengthen that fabric, right? And and to say, this was because I am good at whatever it is that I do. I'm, I'm My decision was great and I'm competent and I'm skillful and I caused that good outcome to occur. And now my the, my my the fabric of my identity is now stronger. But when I have a bad outcome, now I'm in danger of weakening that fabric. I'm in danger of sort of tearing a hole in it by saying, ooh, maybe that was my fault, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe I'm not such a good decision maker. Maybe these beliefs that I had that drove me to that decision weren't correct. Right. So when I'm confronted with that, what do I do? I, well, okay, I've got an escape from it, which is that was just bad luck. And now I get to maintain the fabric, right? I don't have to, I get, I, I don't have to tear a hole in that fabric because I've offloaded it to luck. The problem is that what you're doing is trading the way you feel in the moment for what the quality of every decision you're ever going to make again in the future is. Oh. So you're protecting your identity in the moment. But if you mistakenly think that you had a bad outcome due to luck when it was actually due to something that had to do with the decision you made, and if you were to acknowledge that, you could learn from it and make all of your decisions better in the future. Yes. We don't do that. We're like, hey, to hell with that the future version of me. I don't want to feel bad right Mm -hmm. now. Okay, this is really driving at something that I've been gently trying to advocate for on this show, which uh, here and there, which is that there is value in not having an opinion on something. Because mm. when you choose to have an opinion on something, then you start to, well, you you bolster motivated reasoning, basically. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, here, here's the thing. I think that when people, people feel like, you know, I need to be a confident de- decision maker. And what comes with that is feeling like, uh, you know, you have to have an opinion, you have to have strong beliefs. And when you have strong opinions and strong beliefs, I think they very strongly become part of your identity. And then you get into this problem of identity protective cognition, yes. right? That you're reasoning in a way to protect your identity. And I think that what people, what I would love for people to get their heads around a little bit more. And this is, by the way, something that I'm, I'm really working on for myself. Oh, we all have to. Because j- just like everybody else, like I'm a human being 
And trust me, like I'm motivated reasoning left and right. I mean, you should see me watching the news if you want to see somebody <laughs> with a motivated reasoning problem, right? I mean, I think that this is a problem that we all have in the same sense that like we all have to breathe air. You know, it's like, we'd like to be able to learn how to hold our breath a little bit longer, but you know, there's limits to what we can do. <laughs> um, but, but I think that what, what I'm trying to really train for myself and hope that I can spread the message about with other people is that you can hold your opinions loosely and you can still be incredibly decisive because what you can recognize is that if you really, really embrace uncertainty, then what you know is that, look, the, the stuff that I know like can fit on the head of a pin and the stuff that I don't know is like the size of the universe. So I have to recognize that the stuff that I know, first of all, is not particularly broad, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's just huge gaps in my knowledge. And then I also have to understand that, that within the stuff that I know, there, there's all sorts of inaccuracies living in there as well that, uh, that, uh, you know, at some point, hopefully I'm going to correct, right? Um, so, so, uh, I, I want to hold my beliefs really loosely because the more loosely that I hold my beliefs, the more, that I am likely to really repair the cracks in the beliefs that I have, repair the inaccuracies in the beliefs that I'm holding, and then also to broaden my knowledge because I'm going to be much more open-minded to opinions uh, and beliefs that I don't already have or hold, right? Or, and information that I don't already know. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't be a really decisive person because once I recognize, look, we're all living in a state of uncertainty. So any moment that I make the decision, a decision. I'm making the decision based on the state of my beliefs in this moment. And the state of my beliefs in this moment are as good as they're going to be up until that moment. So I can act very decisively based on the state of my beliefs in this moment. But the, as soon as I'm done, I have to go back to holding those beliefs pretty loosely. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of the problem is particularly when we act on our beliefs, that the, the very act of acting our, on our beliefs tend to strengthen them. And the decisions that we've made in the past become part of our identity. And that also causes us to hold on to those beliefs very closely. And we feel like, well, all right, but, but if I, if I've done stuff in the past based on this belief I have, and then in the future, I, I change my mind and decide that that, that belief isn't, isn't exactly accurate. Doesn't that mean that my past decisions were wrong? And God forbid I ever had to find out I was wrong. So I'd rather just not change my mind. Because I don't want to feel like I was wrong. And I would say, no, you aren't wrong because literally here's the secret. At every single moment that you live, you're wrong about most things because there's just too much stuff that you don't know. And there's too much luck involved anyway for you to be able to predict the, predict the future perfectly. So just accept like you're just pretty much kind of wrong all the time. So why don't you try to be less wrong? And if your whole goal is to be less wrong, you're going to be way better off because you're just not going to be protecting that that identity in the same way as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if we act in one way and we later find information that uh, conflicts with our beliefs, then we're going to experience cognitive dissonance, right? We want right. we want to be consistent. We believe our, ourselves to be consistent people, and so then we will do whatever sort of mental acrobatics necessary to justify whatever belief it was that we had in the past when we made this decision or made this action. 
Yeah. And, and I think that what, what I would love people to sort of change their mindset about is this sort of celebration of finding out that your belief wasn't accurate, right? Like, because it's this idea of like, there's an infinite number of versions of me that are going to exist past this, this particular moment. So if I can celebrate the fact that I figured out that I figured out something new or I calibrated a belief that I had before, because that's going to make all of those future versions of me a better decision maker. Like, yay, yay, yay. Um, yay, I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yay, I was wrong. And because now, oh, that's going to be so much better for the future. I think what's kind of interesting is like, every single one of us does have the capability to do this. If we get enough separation between the person who was wrong and us. So as an example, like all of us are totally fine with the fact that we believed a whole bunch of stuff when we were five. That's just preposterous, (laughs) you know, and that we made a whole bunch of decisions based on these preposterous beliefs when we, we had when we were five. And I think that everybody's pretty okay with that. So why, but you know, if, if you made a decision that was based on a preposterous belief a week ago, and I point out some piece of information that might reveal that the belief was preposterous, you will do everything in your power to make sure that, that you dismiss me, mm-hmm. that it's not true, that I'm wrong. But like, it's fine if I tell you about this preposterous thing from when you were five. So I think that I would love for people to get to in, into sort of more of a mindset that like at every moment in our life, our life, we're kind of like we're five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it's like, okay to find out that like that thing that you believe was totally preposterous, because that means that all of your decisions going forward are going to be better for it. Yeah, let's let's talk more about actions or things you can you can do to be a better belief updater, so to speak. Like for myself and my my own business, I've been trying since reading your work and the work of Philip Tetlock. I uh, love Phil. Yeah. I love Phil so much. That, you know, now I, 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 I do like an income report publicly each month in my business. And I might, before I do say a product launch, uh, I'm deciding to do a product launch on this product versus doing this other thing um, because I only have so many resources. And then Along with that, I might make a prediction, but my prediction is like, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a scoring system almost of like, well, I think I have a 60% confidence that I'll be within this range. And I believe that because these things and that things and to actually write it down um, and then, you know, go through with it and then later revisit that and kind of evaluate my reasoning like is that a good way to approach it or do you have other uh ideas for how to how to be a better belief updater so uh yeah so so i i think first of all that having a good decision process is is a really important part of uh being a really good belief updater and there's sort of the, uh, the center of this process of, of a good decision process that I think is, is particularly helpful for this. And, and you've hit on it a little bit. So when you're thinking about an option, um, that what you want to do is the first thing is identify the possibilities. So in other words, if I make this decision, what do I think the reasonable set of possible outcomes are? And actually write those down. Th- those could be scenarios. Mm. It could be, you could be thinking about uh, a particular payoff that you're interested in. 
So for example, if you were thinking about what, what's the probability that I increase sales by zero to 5%, five to 10%, 10 to, to 20%, or that sales decrease, right? And, and you can sort of figure out, well, you know, this is what I really care about. And let me actually try to figure out what I think the chances of each of, each of these, these scenarios happening is, right? Where it could be a full scenario, but it, it could also be a particular aspect that you care about. And with scenarios, like for myself, I, I open up a, a like a, a notes file and I just make a bullet point list. Scenario one, this happens. Scenario two, this happens. Yes. And then like sub bullets underneath those, like, well, what, why might that happen? Or why might this other thing happen? Is there, is that a good way to do it? Or is there, are there other ways? Yeah. So, so for each forecast, so, so when you make, when you do these forecasts to actually write, to, to actually write, uh, down a rationale for why you think, uh, why why you think that this might occur at, at, with that particular probability is actually really important. So so that you understand what your knowledge is that's underpinning, um, and the beliefs that you have that are underpinning this particular prediction that you make. So so now you're you're thinking about okay, so here are the possible here are the possibilities. Then the next step is what's my preference for those possibilities. Right. So that's just the payoffs, right? Is it moving me toward my goal or is it moving me away from my goal? So it's just looking at what of, what of these possibilities is upside for me by how much? What of these possibilities creates the downside? Obviously there's risk associated with the downside. Then you actually want to do an estimate of what the likelihood is that each of those is going to occur. And that's where you really get into this. This is the key, I think, for belief updating because in forcing yourself to make a probability estimate, what you're doing is saying, okay, clearly I don't have perfect knowledge. I'm not an omniscient being. So as I'm trying to think, like if I, if I launch a particular product, uh, what's the probability that, um, let's say that you were in software development, for example, you know, what's the probability that, uh, it crashes, right? On first launch, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say that you're trying to sort of figure that out. Well, now, in order to answer that question, you have to start saying, like, what are the things that I know? What are the things that I don't know? Um, how could I actually improve my estimate of this so that I could actually get closer to accuracy? Because what ends up happening is that those forecasts end up being a record where what you care about is that your estimates were accurate not that they were right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's particularly useful if when you make those estimates, you sort of give sort of what your highest possible answer is and what your lowest possible answer is. Because whatever that range is, is going to signal to you how much uncertainty you have around the estimate that you're making, which is then going to make a signal for yourself to go find out more information. Right. Right. Because naturally we want to narrow the range. Now, the other thing that it does for you um, because when you, so let's say that you say like, you're, you're, you're saying, what's the probability of failure here, right? Like what's, what's the probability that literally this product that I launched like crashes in the first 24 hours, like you're launching a website, for example, what's the probability of crashes in the tw- first 24 hours? You say, well, uh, it's 10%, but I think it could be as low as 2%, but as high as 35% of the time mm-hmm. that this will happen. Okay. So, so now what I've done is I'm naturally taking an open-minded stance to it because I've got a pretty wide range here, right? 
I know that my information is imperfect. I'm reminding myself that I don't know for sure. Um, getting myself to go look for more information to try to actually narrow that down. But now think about what happens when I communicate this to you. Mm -hmm. And I say, Hey, David, I'm thinking about launching this website. I'm thinking about what the probability is that the website crashes. I think it's about 10%, but here's my, here's my upper bound and lower bound around it. Now I've told, I've, I've just invited you to, to, to just unload a bunch of opinions on me and your information on me Mm -hmm. because I've naturally signaled to you that I'm open-minded to what you have to tell me. Now I'm not afraid to disagree with you or, or present some sort of evidence that your estimates might be off. Right. Because there's kind of nothing to disagree with me about now. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I haven't really put a huge stake in the ground. Right. Because I'm sort of saying like, I think it's this and I've got this range around it. So I'm sort of saying to you, like, for obvious reasons, I'm not sure because there's just a whole bunch of stuff I don't know. I don't necessarily know, like, how many people are going to visit the website. I don't really know what the tolerance is for for how many, you know, for whatever, like all the things that can make a website crash, which I don't know a whole bunch about, whatever it might be. So, so what's really beautiful about that is that I've just opened myself up to, to you telling me what you know, which is really the best way for me to calibrate my beliefs is to really kind of like suck up other people's opinions. And the problem is that the way that we tend to communicate when we, when we, uh, express our beliefs as, as, as certainties, which is the way that most of us communicate, is that we aren't inviting people to tell us the stuff that lives in their head. And when we think about this problem that we have of there's this little tiny bit of knowledge that I have, and then there's this whole universe of stuff that I don't know, a lot of the stuff that I don't know lives in other people's heads. And so I want to be a really good extractor of that knowledge. And it's my responsibility to communicate in a way that first of all, keeps my mind open by acknowledging and and really embracing the uncertainty around my own beliefs in a really authentic way, but also communicates that to the people that I'm talking to in a way that makes them feel mm-hmm. like they're going to express their disagreement with me as much as possible. Because that's what I don't, I don't care if you agree with me. That doesn't help me very much. What really helps me is when you disagree with me. That is incredibly helpful to me. So I need to communicate to you that that is totally okay. And then to your point, when you create a record of that, what happens is that now we get a little bit out of this problem of, of, of this way that outcomes can sort of get in the way of good decision making because we're, we're either sort of trying to fend off the bad outcomes or like embrace the good outcomes in a way that, that kind of causes us to update in a, in, in a not accurate way is because I've got a record, I now understand what an outcome means, which is that if an outcome happens that was really unexpected, given what my forecast was, that's now something that I want to dig into. And it doesn't matter whether it was a good outcome or a bad outcome. What matters is that it was unexpected. So it gets me a little bit out of the problem of I don't really want to think about good outcomes and I want to think a lot about bad outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. Um because what now I care about is that the outcome was kind of unexpected. Like I made this forecast and really wasn't expecting this. Or the other place that you can now dig in because you have a record is when the outcome occurs for a reason that you didn't anticipate. When information reveals itself that you did not know and was not 
included in your decision process. Now that's something that you can really start to dig into. Um, and, and because you're focused on the forecast, you get less attached to the idea of like being right or wrong and more attached to the idea of how can I create more accuracy in the way that I'm thinking about the future. Yeah, I think that ties it all together for us, really, of, of how to uh, be a, a good belief updater and how to, how to not evaluate all of our decisions based upon, upon the results. So thank you so much, Annie, for taking the time to talk with me today. The book that I've read is Thinking in Bets, but I didn't even know you had a new book coming out. So tell us about that. Tell us where we can get more of you. Well, so the, the new book isn't coming out until uh, spring of That's 2020. <laughs> so people are going to have to wait. But you can, you can actually pre-order it now on Amazon. It's called How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. And that particular book, I'm really, really digging into decision process. And it really came out of the fact that, uh, you know, obviously, you know, thinking of bets is more of what I, I think people would call like an idea book, right? Like here, here are some ideas somewhat philosophical about what would help you to be a better decision maker, what would help you to be more open-minded and so on and so forth. And one of the biggest questions that I, that I had with thinking in bets was, okay, how do I put this into practical application? Mm -hmm. Um, and so this, this new book is really focusing on the more practical side of it. Like how would I actually, how would I actually walk through a decision and make a decision and, and do some of the stuff that we, we've just talked about. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Although I'm just finishing up the draft. So. I'm in the part of writing a book, which I call despair, <laughs> which is like, oh no, this is so hard. And why did I ever decide to write another book? And this is, you know, what was I thinking? But I, I'm sure that I will, come out of, I will snap out of that. Maybe you wrote down what you were thinking somewhere and you made some predictions. No, I know. You know, it's like you feel good when it's done, but it, you know, as anybody, as, as not anybody, but as most people who have written a book will, will tell you, there are parts of writing that are torturous. Yes. The particular part of writing that I find torturous is when in my head, something sounds amazing. And then when I put it down on paper, I'm like, <laughs> what? Wait, that's, that doesn't seem nearly as good as it was in my head. And then you get really, you know, that's really hard to sort of yeah. find out that. Um, you know, that thought that you had that you thought was super genius was maybe not as genius as you thought it was as you tried to actually put it down on paper. Well, I'm really looking forward to the to the next book. Yeah, so I'm I'm excited about that. That'll be out next spring. And then the the other thing that I would love for people to check out is the Alliance for Decision Education. So a lot of these things that that I'm I, you know I'm really trying to talk about, and obviously you know Phil Tetlock is talking about this stuff too. And like Michael Malbison and obviously like Danny Kahneman and Cass Sunstein and Jay Van Bavel. And just, I mean, the list is, is so long of people who are, who are really thinking in this space and in such an amazing way is there's a lot being written now, like in this space that's being consumed by adults, you know, people like you who are really trying to become better decision makers but mm -hmm. it's not in K through 12 education. Hmm. We aren't taking our kids and saying, Hey, uh, let's think about what, what would be really good decision skills for you to have, right? How, how would you make a decision? How would you think about habits? Um, and identify those and try to figure out what are the habits that you'd like to nurture and what are the ones that maybe aren't so productive for you? Um, how do you compare options? Right. How do you, how do you think about 
um, what the results of your decisions might be. You know, these things that are things that, um, you know, all these great and amazing writers have been thinking about. And, and I think starting to really make a dent in the adult population, but, you know, it's not necessarily trickling down into K through 12. And that's what we're trying to do at the Alliance for Decision Education is really create a movement around the idea that decision education, um, and teaching kids, you know, decision skills is really important and, and really should be an imperative, um, in order to, to skill, skill these kids up. Um, so hopefully people will go and, and check out the Alliance and, see what it is that we're doing there and, you know, become an ally for us. Well, that sounds great. It's something, uh, some better decision-making skills uh, would have been something that I could have used uh, really any time before the age of 40. So, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so that sounds like a, a, a great organization as well. So uh, again, thank you so much for being on the show, Annie. Well, thank you for having me. This was a fun conversation. Is Love Your Work helping you find your unique creative voice? Does it bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to become the creator and human you want to be? If so, please be a part of making this a special and nourishing and thoughtful show. Support the show on Patreon. You'll be an even bigger part of this show than you already are. If you contribute just a coffee a month, you'll be helping support the hosting and production of Love Your Work. Everyone has some unique creative gift to offer the world. Together, we can give people the tools they need to bring that work into the world. The world will be better off for it. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash This is a different kind of model for supporting the work that you love. The choice is yours. Vote with your dollars, put your money where your mind is, and keep love your work going. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash As a thank you, you'll get early access, bonus content, and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at patreon.com slash cadavy. That's patreon.com slash K-A, D as in David, A, V as in Victor, Y. And if you can't support the show financially and you've listened to at least three episodes, can you do me a favor? Write a review on Apple Podcasts. You can consider it your donation to help support the show. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, such as mini-sponsor Paula Spriggs and top supporters such as Jeffrey Mason and Vitas Pankovicius. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for this show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc. <laughs>